everyone, and welcome to Debating Metal. I'm your host, Kenneth Dean, the Dean of Metal, and along with my co-host, Chris Kay, we discuss and dissect our favorite music, heavy metal. So sit back, relax, pop open a cold one, and let the debate begin. Welcome back. This is Debating Metal. I'm your host, Kenneth Dean, along with my co-host, Chris Kay. And we're here for episode five. It is going to be an action-packed episode. Not really. It's got a, just a lot of conversation that we're going to have. How are you today, Chris? <laughs> I'm doing pretty good. We, we've got a lot to talk about today. And um, we've got uh, our, to- our main topic is going to be musicians who went solo. And then later on, we have a, a double big four for you, but we're not going to announce what it is. I want to start off with something real quick um, that I've been reading in the news lately, and that is this whole saga with Billy Sheehan and Van Halen. Are you aware of that? Uh, I am. It's something that was just brought to my attention. It's kind of interesting. Basically, so so to go over what's going on, Billy Sheehan uh, was interviewed recently for uh, Metal Magazine, and they asked him, if he was ever approached to join Van Halen. And his answer was, yes, I was approached three different times, a couple times in the 80s, one time in the 90s. He went up to jam with them. But then he comes back and gets upset about the fact that this magazine posted this article, you know, saying that it was clickbait, you know, that it was just a headline, but he never really was offered the job in Van Halen. Personally, I'd like to know the truth. Not that I really care in, in the end because... Bottom line is he never did join Van Halen, but I just wonder why this is coming up now and then why he's backtracking going back and forth. It does seem interesting that sometimes these guys go back and, and bring up these stories. It was, it's almost like they need something to be still relevant. And I don't mean that in a, a mean way. I just, you know, what what's kind of the point of rehashing some of these stories like this? Sometimes you, you're just being interviewed. You, a guy asks you because you know, Billy, Billy Sheen has been in a lot of bands. I mean, obviously he was in Talos. He was in David Lee Roth. So many bands. Now he's currently with the Winery Dogs with Mike Portnoy and, and Richie Cotson. His relevance is there. He's still a relevant musician. But the problem is you get these interviewers who want to either drudge up old stuff on, on, on these guys or, for lack of a better term, make something up. And I don't think this is made up. Well, yeah. I mean, there's so much clickbait, so much these stories just just to grab your attention that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the actual story. Right. I mean, and Blabbermouth is really popular with that. You know, that mm-hmm. that's what they're famous for and their their clickbait headlines. And you know what? I read Blabbermouth every single day and it doesn't it doesn't bother me because I I can look past those clickbait things and I you know, but it does interest me so I go, let me see what the article's about. I mean, there literally have been times where I've read the the headline and it had nothing to do maybe one line had to do with the headline, but the whole story was something else. Yeah. And that's kind of annoying when I read it. With with Billy you know, it, it being such a prolific bass player, I, I don't understand why he would go back and forth and backtrack. If you said it, you said it. I mean, if it happened, it happened. Right now, well, with if he's the, friends with Michael Anthony, though, he may want may not want to upset him. Even though Michael's like the most chill guy ever. Oh yeah, and I don't. You know, you're also talking about something that happened in the '80s. For for what what it may have been worth, they may have had their disagreements with Michael back then, and and who knows? But he stayed all the way yeah. through. You know, the '90s. And then got basically the unceremonious boot 
you know, when, when they made the uh, Best of Both Worlds greatest hits. So well, even before that, even with, before with, that, with Van Halen three, it was kind of limited use. Right, they've been kind of weird about that, and it's just been kind of annoying. This whole Van, Van Halen saga, and even now, you know, is is he sick? Is he not sick? He keeps popping up with a picture here and there. I don't, you know, it keeps getting posted by someone in the family. It's hard to really determine what's going on at any given time, and how many times have he has he flipped flopped on how he felt about the different lead singers of the band mm-hmm. how many times has he flip-flopped about just so many different things his control habits of, of, of what goes into the album you know i remember i want to say it was a uh, diver down he he strategically removed the guitar string sounds yeah, on everything weird. i mean it just we're lucky enough to get good music out of them and luckily uh, the 2012 a different truth was still a pretty great album it was Best of luck to Van Halen. Hopefully he stays healthy, Eddie. Who knows if the band will come back. If they do, great. Hopefully they come back in their prime or in the in the best shape possible. Um, maybe they'll put out an album. Maybe they won't. Who knows? As far as all that's concerned, we need to move on to our main subject today, and it's musicians who went solo. And this one's going to be a little bit different. It's going to be more of our conversation that we've been trying to have and going back and forth and debating some stuff. We're talking about guys like, and just to, to give a, a brief list, Ace Frehley, Zach Wilde, Bruce Dickinson, David Lee Roth, uh, Jeff Tate, Sebastian Bach, all these guys who either been fired or quit their bands to go solo and either did or didn't go back to the bands or did something else or maybe even created a new band. With that said, who would you like to talk about first? I mean, I got to go with my boy Bruce. Bruce. Bruce Dickinson, Iron Maiden. Yeah, I mean, he had a solo album really before he left Iron Maiden. Right. Uh, he did a Tattooed Millionaire. That was mostly kind of based on the fact that he was doing Bring Your Daughter to the Slaughter. Uh, for, for, the, oh, for, for Freddy's Nightmare? Freddy's Nightmare, yeah. Mm-hmm. It just kind of went from there. They started recording more music. It was different stuff than, than uh, Iron Maiden. So, you know, he just put out an album. And then, what was it, 92? He left... Uh, he left in 93. 93, mm-hmm. officially after yeah. the tour after for, the tour. Yeah, for uh, Fear of the Dark. Mm-hmm. Wanted to go so, in a different direction, kind of, you know, still still rock, but it put out Balls to Picasso, a little more different than Iron Maiden, for sure. And then went uh, not long after that with the, the Skunk Works thing. Yeah, that was, that, that was weird. Yeah, well, it was, mean, just, it, it was supposed to be a band. I mean, he, right. he wanted to create the band Sp- Skunk Spunkworks. Skunkworks. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and what ended up happening was the label wouldn't put the album out under the name Skunkworks. Because Bruce is the, is the marquee. Yeah, and, it, and he's so big. Even back then, I mean, he was just, it was just huge with Iron Maiden, and they needed that name. Right. No. They, yeah. They need a name power just to get him out there. Yeah. So, uh, but the the Skunk Works in 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 a nutshell was a failure. It was it was grunge. Yeah. And it wasn't what we expected out of Bruce. No, not at all. So his fan base wasn't there. It'd be like starting over. Mm-hmm. But he hooked up with Roy Z, and that was a good thing. Well, he actually did uh, Balls to Picasso with Roy Z first. Well, that's right. That's and true. They, that way, they already had the relationship. But then mm-hmm. they, they did the two following albums. Uh, Accident of Birth and Chemical Wedding, which were very... Those were excellent. Yeah. They Those were, were great albums. Very heavy albums. Very heavy and 
there was a big factor about those albums that was different from Balls to Picasso because Balls to Picasso was that that tribe of gypsies type of yeah, it was, he was trying it was to, rock it was a right, hard rock album where with Roy Z he took most of the band but uh, and and did Balls to Picasso this, Adri- they, Adrian Smith was brought on board Adrian Smith was the key to to uh, Accident of Birth and Chemical Wedding mm-hmm. that was huge the songwriting you could see that him uh, the Adrian and Bruce had a great partnership as far as songwriting oh, yeah. was concerned and you throw in Roy Z who's a great producer great songwriter himself and that's why those two albums are awesome oh they're you fantastic they're even great. the following album after he rejoined Iron Maiden uh, Tyranny of Souls mm-hmm. which was just with Roy Z Adrian Smith didn't right. didn't participate in that album but it was a great album very, oh, yeah. very enjoyable yeah, and I mean, again, it, it it's a testament to Roy Z and how good of a of a guitar player and how good of a songwriter he is. And they have good chemistry too. Yes, and supposedly there's going to be a fourth one. Which, uh, if, if Eternity should fail, it's supposed to was be supposed on that. to be on that right. one because it was originally written for a Bruce solo album. Right. So Bruce Dickinson went solo, 1993. Very successful. Had you would say a relatively successful career, even though it was predominantly a club based career. It was, um, but overseas, I mean, he did pretty well. Yes. And his biggest achievement overseas was playing in Sarajevo mm-hmm. during the war. They they currently have a movie, a documentary that came out called Scream for Me, Sarajevo, which documents the time that he, he went there basically through enemy lines to try and get this concert played. Yep. Um, and after everybody told him no, after everybody backed out on him, he, him and the band said, we're moving forward. But Bruce so, is just that kind of guy. He he does what he wants to do. I mean, he fought, flies the plane for yeah, that's, Iron Maiden. That's so cool. He's just he's just that energetic guy, and he he stands by his convictions, and that's why I've always respected Bruce. Oh, Bruce I love awesome. him as the as the the leader of Iron Maiden. And I don't mean that like everybody knows that Steve is is the de facto leader, but but the front man, the guy that gives the energy to the crowd, that's always going to be Bruce. Yeah. And I was actually just today listening to a Chris Jericho podcast where he was talking to Adrian Smith and they were talking about when when Bruce came back to the band in 1999, he almost took on a greater role as being that front man. Um, I can see that. I mean, mean, just imagine how good he was back then. And now all of a sudden, you know, he's taking a bigger role of being an even more... How can you say a bigger show? How can he be a bigger showman than what he already was? Well, and it he, only makes sense. I mean, you think about it. Like when he was in Iron Maiden the first time, that was a collaborative effort. It was a band, and they had been working together. And he wasn't in the original lineup. He was brought in. Mm-hmm. So at that point, he he didn't own the band, you know. Um, but when he went off on his own for was it almost ten years? No, it was six because he came back years. in ninety nine. So. Well, I mean, he but he played. Uh, before he left. Well, he played before he left, but it wasn't like a... a, a he, he but that was... Doing... But I mean, it was still his project. Right, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. so he that was, was from 99, from 1990 to 99. So he had the o- ownership right. there. Mm-hmm. Right. And when he's out, you know, being the, the, the leader of the band, because nobody else had that, that kind of prestige within the band, he developed himself. Yeah, his, if anybody's been out has gone to see the Legacy of the Beast tour, they would know exactly what we're talking about when it comes to the fact that he has become the great showman. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I mean, and if, if whoever hasn't seen that, that tour, you missed out because it's probably not coming back to the United States in that same form. All right, so we talked about Bruce Dickinson and Iron Maiden. Uh, who else do we want to talk about now? Um, why don't we talk about Ace Frehley, my favorite KISS member? <laughs> he's your favorite KISS member? Oh, yeah, he's my favorite. Why? He's just so entertaining. 
he's, <laughs> he's got that great laugh. Um, he, he's, he's just such a, a out there guy. The spaceman is the perfect description of him. Yeah, for sure. Ace Frilly, uh, fourth member of Kiss. He's one of the original four founding members of Kiss. Played with them from 1973 through 1980. Um, that short no, of a period of No, time. 81, actually, because he played with them on the Elder album and then did a very small tour with them. But by that time, he was pretty much on the outs. He did not record Creatures of the Night, even though his it's, face is on the cover. And he did promo. I mean, he was on the video for I Love It Loud. He did promo work for him, but he was not on the album and he was not going to tour and he was already out of the band. Well, that's kind of interesting. I guess I guess Kiss kind of had that going for them where... where uh, Peter Chris didn't record with them, right, on a, a few albums or he didn't a record, limited amount on some of them? He didn't record anything on Unmasked because mm-hmm. there was no, he, they didn't put one of his songs on there. He did, uh, I think, one or one song, uh, Dirty Living, on Dynasty, and that was the only thing that he had played on. Everything okay. else was Anton Fig. So I guess in that respect, Ace probably still was part of the band, even though he didn't record anything to a degree. With Creatures? Yeah. No, he quit. He quit already by mm-hmm. that time. Yeah, he had So quit. why was he doing the promo work? Because they hadn't announced that he was gone. Okay. And for what I believe, it was probably more embarrassment. They didn't want to upheaval again. I mean, just two years later after okay. Peter Chris had, had left the band, they hadn't found a permanent replacement. Vin, you know, yeah, because they didn't make Vinny a member officially until Creatures was out. So he still stuck around for a little bit, even after he quit. Yes. Was that contractual obligation or? I don't know the exact details as to why. That's interesting. Yeah, but he he basically helped them out. You the, know? Yeah, they're they're kind of a confusing band in that way. Their history is so elaborate. Kiss is weird. We're we're gonna do what what I call career episodes. You know, we're gonna talk about the careers of Kiss, Iron Maiden, Judas Priest, all those classic bands, and those will be nice long episodes. And that'll be so, fun. Yeah, Kiss is definitely gonna be one of them, if not the first not, one we're talking about. If not in eras. <laughs> so yeah, so Ace Frehley wrote a bunch of music with Kiss, and then uh, didn't sing with them from '74 to '77. Was the first time he he sang. He sang "Shock Me," even though he had written uh, "Cold Gin." He had written several of their, their bigger songs at the time, but didn't want to sing. Finally, they convinced him to sing. He shocked me. It was a hit for, for Kiss. I guess not necessarily on the charts, but with the fans. But that led him to want to do more solo stuff. And There's actually a really kind of a cool story of mm-hmm. how he recorded Shock, Shock Me. Uh-huh. Do you know about that one? Yeah. So he, he was so nervous about recording the audio uh, the, the vocals mm-hmm. for uh, uh, Shock Me that um, Gene was telling him, you, no, you got to do it. You got to do it. You, you got to sing this song. And he finally agreed to do it, but he was so nervous about it, he laid on his back on the ground and recorded with the mic aimed down at him. I think I did hear about that story. That's, that's, that's I'm pretty, pretty, I'm pretty funny. I'm probably sure I read it over the years, but I've read so much stuff from Kiss. I mean, <laughs> I've been a fan of theirs since I was eight years old. So, you know, I've read, you know, book after book after book, and, and I have a whole bunch of books. But yeah, he was a, he was a shy one. And you would not know you that now know that. <laughs> from everything that's <laughs> going on. Especially seeing the Tom Snyder interview. Right, exactly. And, yeah. Basically between one thing or another. With drugs and alcohol being the, the big problem with Ace and Kiss, he ends up leaving the band to go do his solo stuff in 1982. Shortly thereafter, he's trying to put together a band. He puts together a band called Freely's Comet. That doesn't come out. That The band doesn't actually release an album until 1987. 
It's a um, long period of time. Yeah, so he was trying to do something. First, he was trying to get his act together. Um, that was one thing. Second, he was trying to put the guys in the band together. Once he finally did that, they were able to sit down, record, and create an album. And, and that album ended up being called Freely's Comet, even though it was Ace Freely as a solo artist. Freely's Comet was the title of the album. Kind of like how uh, Ozzy, Ozzy and Blizzard of Oz. was Blizzard of Oz. And then but the became... next album for Ace Freely and Freely's Comet was a Freely's Comet album. Oh, okay. Yeah, so he did make it a band, even though there were some changes immediately thereafter. Anton Fig was the drummer on the album, uh, Freely's Comet, but did not tour. He did a couple shows, did not tour, quit. And then they had, I think, a guy named Jay, Jamie Odelmaker, I think was his name became the regular drummer. So Ace's career in, in since leaving KISS has had its ups and downs. He has, with his substance abuse and his struggles with that to stay clean, uh, had some issues. He has remained clean, as far as I know, for the last 20-something years, which yeah, is really he's, good. He's been pretty vocal about it. Right, and and that's been a little bit of his issue with KISS because they, you know, they keep harping on the fact that he's not responsible, not reliable, but yet... Something He's, that happened years right, ago. Right, exactly. Much like we mentioned earlier, you know, there are guys on this list that have gone and come back. And Ace really came back in 1995 to Kiss during the reunion. Was that, was that before the Psycho Circus? That or? was before Psycho Circus. They did a brief reunion, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. what happened was um, they did the MTV Unplugged. That was a culmination. What had happened uh, in 95... 1995, there was a lot of um, independent, private, what they would call KISS conventions. They would go to different hotels and, they, and people would sell their memorabilia. Basically, like it was a KISS con, if you want to call it that. You yeah, know. fans getting right. together. So they were doing this a lot, you know, and I've been to one. I saw Peter Chris, I've seen Eric Singer. And so they were, you know, they would sell videos, they would sell all sorts of memorabilia. Finally, Kiss kind of got a hold of this and say, listen, you know, no, no, you can't use the Kiss name. They kind of halted the Kiss convention and then they did their own. And they basically did a traveling tour during the summer of 1995, going to different places. And what they did was they, they had a walking... Gene being the ultimate oh, opportunity. Exactly. And, and, and you know what? It worked for them because what they did was they, they had this traveling road show that was a, a traveling museum. They um, put stuff that you couldn't get at the KISS conventions because it would belong to them. And then they had a KISS tribute band open up the show, which was really cool because they came, they came out full makeup, old. I don't know if KISS lent them the, 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 the wardrobe or not, but they had a different KISS tribute band in all the different cities. Like Santa Claus. <laughs> In the, in the malls. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So they had, they've got all these KISS guys, you know, so so like if they would come to Houston, I think they would probably pick KISS alike. The, <laughs> that's the that's the, the big Houston uh, tribute band that plays here. Shout out to the <clears throat> local bands. Shout out, yes, yeah, shout out to all the local guys here. Now, they would go to show to show to show and they have KISS, Kiss tribute open up the show and then they'd have a break and then KISS would come out and play an acoustic set. So they would play, and it was a, it was by request. They said it was by request, but when you were there, you really kind of understood it wasn't by request because if you look <laughs> at the list of songs they played, every every show was the same set with a, with a one or two. Who would have known that back then? Right. They would play the acoustic set, and then after that, they had this basically free for all autograph session. You know, whatever you wanted to get autographed, you just had to bum, basically bum rush the stage and have and hand it to them, and they would they would sign it. And they made a ton of money on it. That led to the MTV Unplugged. 
that they filmed for for MTV, and then they invited Peter and Ace to do some of the songs on that show. That led to the reunion. There was later in 95, 96, they went on tour with the reunion. And then after the tour, then it was it was the uh, Psycho Circus album, which, for lack of a better term, was a monumental failure because all the problems that, that were part of Kiss and, and those four guys resurfaced. resurfaced because, you know, they wanted this and they wanted this credit and they wanted that song to be on the album and... and you know, why can't I play this? Why can't so it was just like, you know what? They went on tour, they had this miserable tour, and it became the, the farewell tour because Paul Stanley was so disenchanted with how everything was going. He's like, you know, I don't want to do this anymore. I mean, that's how bad it was. And then midway through, Peter Chris couldn't hack it for, for whatever reason. Uh, I say he couldn't hack it. Maybe he didn't want to, but he left. He just didn't want to continue. Eric Singer came back into the band. Then Ace Freely was the only guitar, you know, was the only it was the other guy left and he came back and forth. He became unreliable and would, would uh, literally just, I'm not going to play the show. So Tommy Thayer, who had been working for Kiss for several years and was one of the main people who set up the Kiss convention, he was the one who basically would step in and play Ace Freely, eventually becoming Which he continues to do today. the permanent role as, <laughs> as, as Ace Freely. So... That's where we're at with that. You know, Ace has gone on to have a relatively, for lack of a better term, mediocre solo career. I mean, he's had his ups and downs. He's had pretty decent albums. It's nothing that was... He's club level. Definitely yeah. club level, you know. And, he, and he's, he's a faithful fan base. Yes. Uh, great. He seems like a pretty great guy. He seems... Um, he's pretty cool. Yeah, he's hysterical. Yes, he's a funny dude. But it, but the not on the level that he was with Kiss. No, 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 and and one thing I, that I've always feel bad about, like we, you know, I mentioned, uh, I don't know if it was last episode or the episode before, there was always that that Randy Rhodes, Eddie Van Halen, and Ace Frehley battle in the '80s, and I always wonder why they would include Ace Frehley. If you're a big Kiss fan like I was back then, Ace Frehley was the shit. You know, he <laughs> was your guitar player. Because you wanted to see that dude who was larger than life with the smoke bombs coming out of his guitars and the fireworks and all that. In reality, if you listen to the playing, it never improved. But I, but I, but I think it was more than that. I mean, he, he exactly what you said, larger than life. Mm -hmm. the, the, the image that was there was inspirational to a lot of people. A lot of kids oh, growing sure. up playing guitar, for sure. and he was the guy that made them want to play guitar. Oh yeah, and, it, and I think it's more on that level than than maybe the playing, the quality of the playing. Right. It, it's just you know that that image that I mean you mentioned it when we first started this when you were talking about when you saw Kiss the first time mm -hmm. on a commercial and how that stuck oh, in your mind. Oh, it it, it totally sucked you in. Yeah, you know? and I mean it, people had that same reaction when they saw Eddie play eruption mm -hmm. you know that guitar that just memorable the red guitar with the white and the black stripes those those images that people see and, and i don't necessarily mean all connected but just those things that people see that stick in their mind and oh, they're yeah. the guy that inspired them to play and ace definitely has that oh for sure i mean he, he definitely i mean he probably helped Dimebag has a tattoo of ace mm-hmm on his arm and it was buried with Eddie's <laughs> he was buried with Eddie's guitar um, so those are the kinds of things he was buried in a kiss casket Dimebag was a huge Ace Freely fan oh, you yeah. know Scott Ian is a huge kiss fan and you can't you can't discount the factor of some of these guys when they go on on their solo gigs and and they're super successful or just you know in the middle 
um, they still have their their huge influence on a lot of people. Oh yeah, and uh, I mean, I can't tell you how exciting it is to see some of these guys live. Oh yeah, I mean, what what was cool when I was living in um, in Miami, there was a time you know the the '90s were were not kind to hair metal bands, you know, and <laughs> to so, say the least, to say the least. And and what was really cool, I got to see Cinderella play a club. I got to see. Uh, Dawkin play a club. I got to see Badlands play a club. Uh, Badlands being Jakey Lee's solo band with Ray Gillen. I got to see Saigon Kick in, in a, a club. And actually, all four of those bands in the same club. It was the Button South in, in Hollandale Beach, Florida. And that club tops 2,000 people. And 2,000 is kind of shoving them in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and from what I found out later on, they, stu- they, they stuffed almost 25 2,700 people for Saigon Kick because that's how maniacal everybody was for their local band. You know, I, oh, I've seen Ace Freely and Peter Chris at the Button South. It, it is so cool to see a band that close, especially, you know, they're stri- essentially stripped down. I mean, there was no show. There was no fireworks. There was mm-hmm. no flames. There was a small little, you know, one-foot riser and the band right in front of you. you yeah. Know? And uh, that, like that's I was an awesome about experience. 10, 20 feet from me. It had to have been about 10 feet from Ingve Malmsteen. It's just so cool to be that close oh, yeah. and see all of it. You know? Yeah, I mean, and after the docking show, me and the guy I was with, him and I hung out waiting for the band, and we got them to sign a poster. All four of them signed it. It was pretty cool. We had to wait the longest, I believe it was for George Lynch. He just would not come onto that bus. <laughs> but he finally did. Uh, and I even got a, a Wild McBrown stick that night. So it was pretty cool. So Ace Frehley's solo career was was up and down for the most part. He's he's still touring. He's got he's done a couple of um, albums recently, so he's still putting out music. Um, some of it new. He just did a covers album a couple of years ago, that went well. He actually had Paul uh, sing on it, and he um, collaborated with Gene Simmons on his new record for a song, the one that came out after. The, um, the the covers album. So it, it he has that relationship with them, but they don't want to do business with him. And you know what? For what it is, it's better that way. Yeah, I'd rather, I'd rather get something good rather than something dreadful that like, you know, a project that falls apart. Right, exactly. You don't, you don't, you don't want another Psycho Circus. Yeah. <laughs> so we've talked about Bruce. We've talked about Ace Freely. Who's next on the list? Why don't we talk about Glenn Danzig? Very good choice. I like Glenn. Okay, so I'm sure you're all familiar with uh, the Misfits, mm-hmm. big punk band. You know, not metal certainly. Towards the end of their career with Glenn Danzig, um, he became very dissatisfied with doing punk. It wasn't the direction he wanted to continue to go. Uh, he quit the uh, the band and formed a project called Sawin, which is uh, with which most people would read as Sam Hain. It's uh, it, it was a little bit of a transition because you can kind of hear those hard rock elements along with the punk vibe, but not exactly where he wanted to go. And the project was kind of falling apart. He was pretty much at the end of the rope there. And Rick Rubin happened to be at what would be their last show and said, hey, we want to sign you. He, he uh, was willing to do it, but only if he could bring along. Uh, was it Chuck? No, it wasn't Chuck Biscuits, but it was... Um, John Christ? Not the, him either? <laughs> <laughs> so, wait, was one person left, I guess, the bass player? What was his name? Uh, Vaughn. Okay. Wasn't Erie wasn't in The Misfits? No, he was in Sewing. Oh, okay. 
So uh, he he wanted to bring Erie Vaughn along. They agreed to it. They they started the Danzig project. Now, interesting note here: Danzig skull that was on the Sawin albums as well uh, was actually ripped off from an old Marvel Kristar comic book cover. Oh yes, I remember that. I've seen those pictures. Yes. So it's it's never quite really been addressed. But yeah, it's actually from one of my favorite Batman cover artists, Michael Golden. Okay, um, cool. Yeah, it's it's interesting, but uh, it never been really brought up. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I've seen I've seen the image where it comes from, and I, when I saw it, the one I say hey, that's Danzig's skull, and, and then I, I was one of those things. I guess he either borrowed it or or asked to borrow it, and whatever, and it became synonymous with him. Who knows? I mean, yeah, it's just on the background behind the main characters on the cover. So maybe that's why no one's just said anything about it. Yep. Um, but so basically he wanted to move in to- towards more of a metal direction. Uh, the first album was pretty hard rock metal, heavy. Yeah, the first album was real good. It was oh, real yeah. good. I mean, my my favorite song off of that is, is Twist of Cain. Yeah, yeah, very cool song. I mean, it, it had a number of hits, uh, Mother being, you know, the, yeah, the, big, the one. big one. But that, that didn't become a hit for, what, another two years, three years or something Yeah, like it took that. some no. time to really take Belonging. off. It didn't become a hit till '93, so that was five years later. Mm-hmm. Yeah, on that live VP that he did, was it Thrall, Demon Sweat, something like that? Well, no, what's interesting too is that um, there was a, a, a parental sticker on that album, and there's really no cursing. It was <laughs> one one word would whore, whoa, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I mean it really was just because of the content of the the lyrics, right? Or what they thought. What they thought. It was evil and, you know. Yeah. But, for I mean, for someone to transition from a completely different genre of music, and yeah, you get the, the influences there. I mean, obviously, the Misfits int- influenced a lot of people, including Metallica. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, they did a few covers of their, their songs. Metallica, Guns N' Roses. Guns N' Roses. Um, so, I mean, it, it's just interesting to see these guys go at, from one successful career and there, yeah, he had a dip in the middle with a, a project that didn't really go anywhere. But Danzig was has been, you know, fairly consistently successful. Yeah, I mean, he had his successes. I mean, I seen him twice in concert back in the early days. I mean, I think it was off of on his Danzig Three album tour that mm-hmm. he did. So he he definitely had a career or has a career, um, and it definitely slowed down. But he's recently just reform, reunited with the Misfits in the last couple of years, and they've played some on and off gigs. Yeah, bigger uh, shows than they had in a long time, yeah. especially with their smattering of replacement singers themselves. <laughs> yeah, and I think that they culminated their their reunion with the Madison Square Garden show, which I don't think 20, 30 years ago they would have even imagined playing Madison Square Garden as a punk band out of what, from California, right? Mm, I believe so, yeah. yeah. So they were, it wasn't something that uh, I think either one of them thought about, but they uh, they became... You know, big enough to do Madison Square Garden all those years later. Yeah, I, I love seeing these bands get their stuff together and actually be able to reunite with their original lineups mm-hmm. and and put on a good show. I mean, a, a lot of fans, that's who they grew up with. That's who they, they want to hear. And luckily, sometimes it does come together. And yeah, it's not exactly the, the, the original lineup, but it's the classic lineup. It's the one everybody knows. Yep. So... Danzig is still playing, and uh, I don't know if he's going to stay with the Misfits. I think he doesn't want to, but I mean, at this point, it's, it's it, it almost seems like a cash grab for me. Well, they've um, done their their 
their stuff. I mean, they, they're a, a, a nostalgia act for, for the sure. most part. Yeah, I mean, they haven't put out a new album since... I mean, I wouldn't even say new album, because they've put new albums out with the other singer, and they had a career that way. As far as Danzig is concerned, they hadn't done anything since probably 1980 or something like that. Yeah, somewhere you know, around there. Yeah. So really, you know, so it's it's not even... They, with them not putting out new music, they're definitely a nostalgia act. That's what people want to see. So, and I don't know anything about what they've been playing in, in concert to to say it's completely nostalgia as far as Glenn is concerned. But they uh, they definitely are touring off of something, you know, and it has to be off of their their old stuff with Glenn. Yeah, he left in '83. Okay, so '83. So. Yeah, because they did. They didn't even release anything until after 1980. Walk Among Us and Earth AD were really the only releases. I mean, then they right. did the collections and stuff yeah. like that. Where They had a lot of songs that were outside of albums. Yeah, I mean, all those little, you know, those singles. I mean, they're punk. Yeah. I mean, that's that's kind of a trend what, of that, that genre of music. That's what they do. They just put out singles because no one wants to put a whole album out. I don't have the energy or the time. <laughs> it's only five minutes long because every song is only 10 seconds. Yeah, well, I mean, the albums are only equate to 17 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> I'll never forget that. <laughs> Quick story. The first time I had a friend of mine, my, my best friend in high school, his name was George Odishu. Him and I, we went to Sam Goody to go buy a record. I, I think it was he wanted to buy a record. And we come across uh, the A section. Uh, I don't think it was separated by metal or punk or anything like that. And we came across this all black album. And he says, I'm going to get that one. And it ended up being Agnostic Front. I was um, going to say Spinal Tap. <laughs> it probably would, it was already out um but it was agnostic front we didn't know anything about it um like he kind of liked the the name of the band because it was on the little sticker we bought it we got home we went to my house to listen to it we were listening to my stereo and 15 minutes later it was over i'm like was that both sides you played i mean do it again it was really really short we just felt like we got ripped off <laughs> i'm like and I and I didn't understand. I that's one of the reasons why I don't like punk. I couldn't understand it whatsoever. I mean, the the the, the vocal phrasing was just out of control. I mean, it was so fast, so undiscernible to me. I mean, I'd rather listen to death metal. <laughs> but, I would, of course, I'd rather listen to death right. metal. I mean, it, it was just one of those things where I just I never got into punk, and I didn't know anything about the Ramones to know that the Ramones were a completely different style of punk. You know, I was in high school and I had paid zero attention to the Ramones. I mean, I was a metalhead, you know, nowhere near punk. Although I knew about them, but didn't listen to them. Didn't think they had anything to do with me, which is weird how Kiss later on does a Ramones cover. I think just about everybody at Children of Bottoms done a Ramones cover. Oh, so we're going to go ahead and talk about Slash now. Okay. And Slash, Guns N' Roses, he, uh, Saul Hudson from England, Stoke-on-Trent, England as he so uh, eloquently named an album after where he was born. He left Guns N' Roses in, I think it was 1995. Under um, great circumstances. Yeah. Thank you, Axel. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, it, it became a situation where Axel was just a control freak. And one by one, everybody left. Yeah, and, I mean, he made Slash apologize to the audience at one point for for doing drugs and... Yeah, you know, not putting on his it. best performance. Right. So rough times there. Yeah, it, it was weird. It was a weird time in the 80s. I mean, excuse me, the 90s for, for uh, Guns N' Roses. I mean, they did Spaghetti Incident, and I think that was the, the the last thing they did. 
Um, oh, the last thing they did was the the, the um, "Sympathy for the Devil" uh, song that they did uh, for the soundtrack, and then that was it. Everybody just went their separate ways. Axel kept the name, didn't keep the logo though, as you can tell. Fifteen years later, Chinese Democracy comes out, and Guns N' Roses logo is completely different. Um, Slash and, and Duff and Axel kept the uh, kept the logo, kept the name. So basically. Axel was licensing Guns N' Roses from from Slash and Duff. Slash goes on to do solo records. He did um, Slash's Snake Pit, and then he. Which is a really cool project. It's five o'clock somewhere. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He, I mean, he he. I remember him saying, I, I want to say on that metal show years ago, mm-hmm. uh, they talked about who was the better the better band, Slash's Snake Pit or uh, Velvet Revolver, and it, it really came down to the fact that. Slash felt that Snake Pit was a solo project. It was never a band. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Okay. What was his Snake Pit? Yeah. <laughs> so then after Slash's Snake Pit, he comes and he puts this, years later, uh, a solo album out with many different guest artists to help him out. And one of the ones that was helping was that, him out. Was that the double album that had um, some live rec- live recordings, the second disc or was this i think uh, that that came out as a special edition yeah okay yeah i i'm I'm definitely aware of that album so he uh puts out this album and it's got i mean they did a cover of paradise city with cypress hill and fergie um but that's where he met miles kennedy very different (laughs) yeah miles kennedy did a couple of albums a couple songs on that album after that i think that relationship is he tried to get miles to join velvet um, when he was doing Velvet Revolver. So he was still pretty committed to uh, Alter Bridge, though. I believe at the time he had just started Alter Bridge, and so that he wanted to make that his main focus. Yeah, he didn't want to. Um, so he didn't want to do that. But yeah, so with all the years in between, because after Snake Pit and he went solo, he joins Velvet, or they, he forms Velvet with Duff and, and Matt. Scott Weiland. Scott Weiland. And then Kushner was the other guitar player. So then, you know, they when after Weiland gets thrown out of the band again. You know, another band he gets kicked out of. <laughs> that's when yeah, it's he, really unfortunate. It is, but that's worked out. Those are the results of a destructive life, I guess you could say yeah, that way. The same thing we were talking about with Ace Frehley. Right, exactly. It's so it's unfortunate. So Slash puts out uh he, he does a couple albums with Velvet Revolver and then in two thousand ten he puts out Slash a solo album. That's where he meets Miles. Um after that Miles didn't doesn't want to join Velvet but Slash, you know, since Velvet was basically on hiatus, they didn't know what they were going to do. Slash decides to put a, another solo record out. And this time, he's like, I want you to sing on it, and talking about Miles. And then one thing led to another. The band members, that they, or the, the musicians that they pulled in, were all friends. They became Slash featuring Miles Kennedy and the Conspirators. It's a very long band name. <laughs> but that is the official band name. It's not... A slash it's you know it, it's about miles and it's about the conspirators and there and, and there are some good musicians in that band um, it's a it's a it's a really different than the other bands they they had you know obviously it's different than guns and roses mm-hmm. but yeah, slash is always going to have his slash sound right and and it's different than alter bridge if you're a fan of that band oh so way different yeah it's a, it's a really interesting project for both of them where you're getting a, a, a fully different experience. So, so don't feel like if you don't like one or the other that you won't like this band. I'd say definitely give it a try. You're talking about Alter Bridge? Or yeah, if you're not yeah. a big Alter Bridge fan or, or say you're not a big Guns N' Roses fan, 
you know, mm-hmm, right. don't discount this band because it's right. very different. No, Slash, Slash featuring Miles Kennedy and the Conspirators, they've they've put out three albums. Um, everyone thinks it's just three Slash solo albums, but they're not. They're, they're three band albums, and they keep getting better and better every time mm-hmm. to the point where when they had only released two albums and then uh, The World on Fire was the second album that they put out in 2014, right after that, um, they announced in 2016... Uh, after the completion of the world tour for World on Fire, they announced the reunion of Guns N' Roses, which has not stopped touring since 2016, which is pretty amazing. I mean, to to be on the the uh, Not in This Lifetime tour for four years is pretty pretty impressive. For that those few of albums to support that long of a tour, it's pretty amazing. Talk about living off of one album. I mean, yes, they put out three studio albums. We'll give them that. Or four with the covers album, but that's the covers album. It's an amazing career to be literally living off of Appetite for Destruction. One of the things for Slash was he wanted to make sure he told his fans, he told Miles, he told the band, they were going to put another album out. And after one of the tours was over for Guns N' Roses, he put out their third album, Apocalyptic, no, excuse me, Living the Dream, which um, a pretty good, I mean, again, everyone got better. So Living the Dream is a pretty good album. I listened to it the other day and it's it's really good rocker. I mean, it's a straight-ahead hard rock album, and so they're they're still going. They're, so they they did some touring, and now it's back to the Guns N' Roses. Well, I, th- I think Slash has to have that creative outlet. He's not necessarily getting a creative outlet with Guns, but he's right. getting something different from that. You know, those are mm-hmm. those are his songs. Those are a big part of his history. So he's getting kind of the best of both worlds. Right, and, and so is Miles, because Miles is you know, full-time with both bands, with Slash and, and full-time with Alter Bridge. And now and that, he's very versatile, so he, he probably needs that. As and well. it's funny, because he sings differently for both bands. Mm-hmm. He's a little more nasally when it comes to Slash. Mm-hmm. He's a little bit more harder-edged when it comes to Alter Bridge. And I, and I, I really enjoy Alter Bridge myself. I know you do. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've definitely come into their own style yeah, I, I, over time, I've really, especially the first album was cool. Uh, it was it was very Creed like, yes, which was, I'm not a fan of Creed at all. But it was still enjoyable because I really like Miles Kennedy's voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they've gotten heavier. With yes, all the, they definitely got heavier. I, I haven't given the newest album enough listens to really give it much of a, a critique. But the last few were were a lot heavier, and I really liked them. Yeah, they, you know, to me, like you said, the first album, Open Your Eyes. Was is it Open Your Eyes? I think. Um, One Day Remains. One Day Remains, correct. Open Your Eyes was the single. That's that. a big single, yeah. That album, One Day Remains, was essentially to me, it almost felt felt like it was a leftover Creed album. Uh, I, I mean, yeah, in, in, in some, some in some degree, in some ways, yeah. But it I, it wasn't written that way, and it but it but it was the same guys writing right. music. So you, you can't just say like they're not gonna they're just automatically going to sound like a different band. Right. You know, and, but Miles influence and in there, him being a guitar player as well. Mm-hmm. Um, he brings in another factor into that band, which. Right. Makes them, yeah. I mean, specifically that, that song, um, open your eyes to me is, is definitely a leftover Creed song that maybe Scott didn't want to sing, but I could see Scott singing it. Uh, Scott Stapp from Creed, but, um, the rest of the I album. I never want to see that. <laughs> the, the album was very good. I mean, so a lot of people thought it was like a you know Creed with a new band and you know a new singer, but 
from the second album on, more actually more from the third album on, when they really got into their own groove and they totally went away from what they did before. And now yeah. that has a lot to do with Mark Tremonti really being more of a heavy metal guy. He's yeah. not this alternative grungy alt metal kind of guitar yeah if you've player. listened to any of his his solo stuff mm-hmm. he's he's a lot heavier there too so yeah so slash miles kennedy and the conspirators um continuing to be a band you know even though it comes under slash's you know name so who do you want to talk about next well let's talk about the late great ronnie james dio oh, ronnie i mean as we all know he served in black sabbath prior to that he was in rainbow Mm-hmm. Um, so he'd done multiple projects with other people, you know, he'd, he'd been in music for a long time. He was in Ronnie and the Red Cap, so he really had kind of a solo thing at the beginning, but that wasn't certainly metal. Um, and then he did Elf. Uh, how, how hard was Elf? Cause I've, I don't think I've, I, I meant to listen to him the other day um, and I didn't get a chance to. Elf is, is very light. Um, you, you would think like, um, almost some kind of led zeppelin-y elements okay but not hard you you can tell like he's going in that direction it's not as hard as rainbow wow okay so So less so there so 60s-ish you know yeah i mean i mean he started doing music in the 50s i mean he did doo-wop right and and then he went into folky rock and then right and then you know those elements came back later especially working with guys like richie blackmore mm-hmm. you know where he's got his own kind of renaissance kind of feel well, he's um, a renaissance man all right yeah <laughs> um so yeah he, he worked with black sabbath uh was a pretty successful there even though it was a short period of time 1980 to 83 i believe was mm-hmm. the the total time he was in the band not even i, I think he left in late 82 was that was that I think Live I've, Evil was eighty one or eighty two? Uh, Live Evil was eighty two. Okay, so yeah, at the I mean, it was three years in the band. Because I think uh, Born Again, uh, not, yeah, Born Again was eighty three. Was eighty three? Yeah. So you've got a really short period of time, but a very memorable period of time with with Black Sabbath. You know, working with these ten- temperamental musicians that he wasn't as much in control of the band, and he's a temperamental musician himself. He needed a solo project. And yeah, Dio's a band, but we all know that Dio is Ronnie James Dio. Right, so, for sure. Yeah, I mean, they, they had several albums at the beginning. What is it, three albums with the same With the original lineup, lineup. It, was, it was three albums. Yeah, but then things changed. So, and and from there on, it's a pretty inconsistent, you know, some of the guys playing on this album, then coming back a few albums later, like Simon Wright, Vinny Apice, you know, just interchangeable guys that all loved working with him, but weren't going to be consistently in the band. So it, it was really a solo project, I would say. Yeah, I mean, it started out as a band. Uh, it was meant to be a band, and they played like a band. I mean, obviously, they're together for three albums. Yeah. But, and I wouldn't even call it creative differences. It was basically business problems mm-hmm. popped up because the other three guys thought they were a band. Yeah, and you know it ended up being where Ronnie was kind of getting more and more of the control, and I had that had to do with Wendy. It has so many parallels with with Ozzy. It's so oh funny. yeah, it, it is very funny, and I think that's why they didn't always mesh very well. Like they we weren't really good friends or anything. They just they were so much alike in, yeah. in a lot of ways. There was mutual respect, but they they yeah. weren't friends. But that may have had to do with Sharon as well, because Sharon just I don't think she has a lot of friends. Business associates, lots of business associates. There you go. <laughs> um, so, so Ronnie does um, his first album, which was Holy Diver, huge album. 
That's a great album. It really is. It's it it's got Holy Diver the song on it. Mm-hmm. Um, stand up, and, stand shout. up and shout. You know, just track after track of just really hard hitting songs, and a lot. I guess you know he had a lot to prove leaving Black Sabbath, especially after only two albums. Oh yeah, for sure. So to, for him to have such a, a, a good career afterwards uh, was pretty impressive. Oh, I mean, he he maintained his career, you know, throughout the entire time when he left Black Sabbath, creates Dio. He maintained that band the entire time, uh, except for a short period of time where he went back to Black Sabbath in 94. Mm -hmm. And then it was, again, another one-off. Not that he wanted it to be a one-off, but it came down to that whole thing with Ozzy. And Ozzy wanting Black Sabbath to open up for him for the the final tour, final show. And Ronnie said no, and that came that kind of put the kibosh on the Black Sabbath thing. And then um years later, Black Sabbath reunites with Ozzy. And then for whatever reason they, they kinda of go on hiatus or the, the Ozfests kinda of die down and heaven and hell. I mean basically Ronnie join Ronnie joins Black Sabbath again. Yeah, they did a Black Sabbath run. But rather than continue with it as Black Sabbath because the Ozzy version was getting so popular, they split off and they made they made Heaven and Hell. Mm-hmm. And that was the, basically the last thing he did before passing away. Yeah. And it's, I mean, Heaven and Hell was a, a great record. Not, not like the Heaven and Hell album that came out with Black Sabbath, but still a very solid record. I mean, it was a modern day Black Sabbath yeah, record. Yeah, it was a return to form. Yeah. You know, it was, there was some I would say really certainly good... more so than Dehumanizer was. Dehumanizer... Wasn't as strong of an album as Heaven and I mean, the Heaven and Hell, the Devil You Know. Right, but what's weird is that that song "Eating the Cannibals," which is off of the Devil You Know, sounds very reminiscent to something that's off of Dehumanizer. And it, it may have it been almost seems like an extension. Over. Could yeah. be. Yeah. And when we all know, I mean, Van Halen reused older riffs, older tracks from, uh, you know, they re-recorded everything, but they put older material on a different kind of truth. So, I mean, there, there's nothing wrong with that. They're holding on to these Oh, if you got a, a good song is a good song, no matter when it was written. But yeah, Dio's, Dio's solo career as, a, as, an, as an artist, I mean, from Holy Diver all the way to Master of the Moon, was as prolific as you can possibly get. Well, those last three or four albums were a little different. He kind of went off in a more like Dungeons and Dragons kind of storytelling mm-hmm. direction. It was kind of hit or miss for a lot of fans. It was. I mean, um, some of the songs were good. I mean, I listened to to Killing the Dragon the other day. There's some pretty good songs on there. Yeah. I was like, wow. This I hadn't heard it. I'd never had listened to it. I, I kind of lost touch with with Dio after Strange Highways, you know, and and even Lock Up the Wolves. I, I wasn't into that stuff. I mean, he got well, Lock Up of the Wolves was the first one that had a completely different band. Right. You know that one. It, it it was 1990, so all of a sudden things started going, you know, grungy, mm-hmm. and he was still Dio, and so people he was not getting the same crowd as he was getting before. So people were beginning to look at him as a fossil, as a dinosaur. Yeah, well, 93. I mean, he brought back Vinnie Appice, so it's it a little bit more, you know, a little closer to the original lineup. Right. Uh, that was strange. Uh, Strange highways. Strange highways. I think I think he was one of those guys that just needed to stick to his guns. He he did for most of his career, and uh, we all love him for it. 
Oh yeah, I mean it, it's he's got two tribute bands going right now. <laughs> yeah, he does. And I don't. I mean, there's the hundreds of tribute bands, but the two big ones. Well, the last I mean, in line. And, the last line, and I don't even and, consider the last in line as a tribute band because it's actually the original Dio band. Mm-hmm. Well, obviously minus Dio and minus uh, Jimmy Bain because he passed away. Yeah. It was meant to be the original Dio band doing Dio songs, but they've actually come out. I don't know if they're on their second or third album now. Mm-hmm. I definitely know they did too. So they're making new music, which is cool. You yeah. know, so Vinny and, and Vivian are together flying the torch for Ronnie James Dio. Now, the other one, Dio Disciples is really not around anymore. It is the hologram band. Yeah, that's right. That's so, true. Yeah. yeah they, they have, Wendy did, I guess, endorse the Dio Disciples. But basically, the Dio Disciples has morphed into what is now the Dio band playing with uh, the hologram. That's a subject for a whole yeah, other thing. That I, is, I would love to go see it, quite honestly, just to kind of understand what it's all about. I was listening to, again, a Chris Jericho podcast uh, you know, interview with Wendy Dio, and they talked about how she is on doing this tour. Ripper's one of the singers. Oni Logan's the other singer. And they basically make it a celebration of Ronnie's music. It's not a straight-up concert with just a hologram. So mm-hmm. they'll come out with the band, and I believe um, Simon Wright's the drummer. I can't remember who the bass player is. Uh, it's not Claude Schnell on keyboards, but it's somebody who was with the original, or the, the not the original, but the um, the last Dio band playing keyboards. And they go out, they do a few few songs with, with Ripper, a couple with Oni, then out comes Ronnie. He does his presentation, he does three or four songs, then out comes Ripper and Oni again. Ripper and Oni do, a, I think, a duet with each other. I think they're going to try and set up a duet with the, uh, or trio with the, with Dio and the other, the other two. It's definitely interesting. It's I, in, I mean, I, I'm not against it. I want to see what it's all about. Yeah. I, I, I'm not going to sit there and put, I can't judge it until exactly, I see it. Yeah. You know, and, and that's a lot of things people are saying, well, that's, you know, it's blasphemous. It's this is that we got to see it. You got to, well, I mean, is it really a lot different than watching a movie with a, a uh, actor that passed away. I well, mean, in theory. Oh, yeah. Really you mean like, like Star Wars and Carrie Fisher? Yeah. I mean, you, know, you go or, back and watch the 1977 Star Wars movie. She's passed away, but you're still watching her. Well, it, it, it is and it isn't. But what you're seeing is something that you've never seen before. So you see a movie, you've seen that. You know it's there. But aren't they taking basically footage of... No, no. This is it's a, all this CG is generated. CGI generated okay, that's different. from scratch. And what they're using is uh, unheard tracks from live concerts. So, mm. so essentially, let's say his last tour, they recorded shows in Wisconsin, whatever. They have those tracks. They'll pull the vocal tracks from that show, and they'll they'll give it to the to the creator of the hologram and say, okay, this is the vocal line you got to follow. The band is playing to a click track because they have to in order to keep up with Ronnie. But the bottom line is the band's playing live. Ronnie's doing a, you know, the vocal track comes from a unspecified show. Interesting. So it is very interesting. I'd, I would definitely be interested to see that, but for sure. I mean, I wish I'm a little apprehensive here. at the same time. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, you don't know what you're getting, but apparently, yeah. I mean, they do um, a lot of fire, mm-hmm. and yet there's no fire. So they do. There's a lot. There's a lot to the show. I understand. I mean, there's, you know, then I feel it's much safer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, they don't need to get approval from the fire department. Yeah. So from you know, so it, it it there's a lot of things that are going on in the show, from what I hear. 
I would love to, for it to come through Houston and, and you know maybe come to the House of Blues and check it out. I mean, it's kind of interesting, and this is kind of a a, a, a tangent here. Um, but uh, a long time ago, there was a there was a movie, an anime movie called Macross Plus. Okay, and there was a, a singer that was all a hologram. The whole the whole thing was she was a hologram, this character that's floating around, and it's a, it's almost like a laser show. And it, it sounds so similar that this concept that came around, you know, years ago mm-hmm. this is kind of the same thing. It's, it's, it's int- similar. I mean, I, it was introduced with, if I'm not mistaken, it was introduced with Tupac first, okay. then Michael Jackson. Because they did... T- uh, South Park did a parody of that. <laughs> so, so I think Tupac was the first one. I think he, I don't know if it was at the Grammys or one of those award shows or mm-hmm. BET awards, then Michael Jackson showed up and then... Uh, I don't know if it's the same creator, but it's the same. It's a similar technology, mm-hmm. uh, and it, apparently the technology has improved dramatically over the over the years. And Wendy has been the spearhead for this. And and what's going to end up happening is that everyone is is talking about how this is this you know this is weird. It's it's, uh, it's controversial, and it may become something that is just standard. From, from going well, it's on. already kind of going that direction. I mean, I think about what we just said with Star Wars. I mean, Carrie Fisher passed away, and she was in another movie after she passed away. Right. I mean, even better, um, what was his name? Uh, the guy who played Grand Moff Tarkin. He was in Rogue One, but he had yeah. passed away years earlier. Yeah, you know? oh, yeah, a long time ago. So It's uh, very... It's very interesting territory that we're but that but into. that's different because that's all computer generated per se mm-hmm. where this has to besides being computer generated has to then be put onto a projector screen that is projected using different things mm-hmm. just so you can see it as a three-dimensional character in front of you yeah so there's certain lines that the musicians can't cross obviously you can't go and hug the guy <laughs> you can't go sing you know head to head with him you know on a microphone you know, you you can't get in front of the light source. Yeah. But at the same time, you can. There is some moving around, from what I understand. That's interesting. I I, I want to know more. I, about I would this. love to see it. Whether or not it's good or bad, I hear it's you know it's good, but you have to see it for yourself. So Ronnie still lives somehow, some way. That's a pretty cool thing. Last but not least on this topic, we're going to touch upon Rob Halford. Rob Halford left Judas Priest in 1992 with whatever, if it was dissatisfaction with the direction the band was going in or the musical. Uh, there were some personal issues. I mean, it, he had come out of the closet and some other, you know, other issues that mm-hmm. he, they just needed to move on at that time. So Rob left after Painkiller. Okay. They had some personal issues, just growing dissension, separating. Sometimes that happens. Yeah, unfortunately, with bands, you guys they, drift they, apart as far as you know the, their musical. And you don't know what's going on in somebody's personal mm-hmm. life that right. they need to deal with. So rather than letting the band fall apart and and you know put out music where they're not happy, it's sometimes it's better they just separate. Yeah, and you know Rob was for for his part was smart, and he's the one who copyrighted the name he he's the one who copyrighted the logo or trademarked the name copyrighted the logo so they couldn't use the the judas priest logo they could still use the name he let him use the name he went on to make a band called fight the first fight album was insanely awesome very heavy into the pit slapped you so hard i mean it was sort of like getting punched on the vulgar display of power cover from pantera i mean that's what it felt like soon as soon as that 
first intro little segment went by that was quiet. And that double bass from Scott Travis came in. It was incredible. Scott Travis, one of my favorite drummers. He's, he's Russ Parrish, amazing guitarist. Mm-hmm. If you're familiar with Steel Panther, he's the guitarist from Steel Panther. Satchel, right? Yes. Fight, they released the album. They tour behind it. They released an EP of, of um, what they call Mutations, which is a, a, a remix EP. And then they released their second album. Which did not have Russ Parrish on it. No, he did not. Um, he left. Uh, the second album was A Small Deadly Space. Toured on the, I, that's when I saw a fight, uh, and I met Rob. And um, embarrassingly enough, I had a camera with me that night. I had not turned the film properly in the camera, and it jammed. Oh, man. So I, I said, can I get a picture with you, Rob? And he's like, yeah, sure. Someone goes to take the picture, and it, it won't click. It won't move. And I was just like shrunk up to a small little boy in a corner. I was so embarrassed. You were in a small, deadly space. Yes, I was. <laughs> and I was so pissed. But he signed my stuff. He signed my uh, uh, Screaming for Vengeance CD. He signed my Fight CD. So it was pretty cool to, just to get to meet him. It was real nice. After that tour, they kind of disbanded. The the, the, the the tour didn't go as well as they wanted. The, the album didn't sell as, they, as well as they wanted. And Rob still needed to experiment. He still needed to get stuff off his chest, for lack of a better term. And the two album, or the two project, came out. Yeah, his his version of Nine Inch Nails. Yes, and that was a disaster. And from what I understand, the album was recorded in one way, which was more metal, and then... Between wanting to be more industrial because Nine Inch Nails and Marilyn Manson were, were popular, they went in that industrial sound and re- remixed the album, re-recorded certain parts, and it just flopped. It flopped so bad. I bought it. I tried to fake it, <laughs> and I put a giant scratch in my CD, and I brought it back. I believe it's the best part. And all they did was replace it, and I was pissed. <laughs> I was like, give me something different. This thing sucks. I, I had it myself. I mean, I was, a, I was one of those guys that when I like a band, I tried to find everything that the band put out and all the side projects and all that stuff. And I don't own any of my CDs anymore, but uh, I went out and found a copy of it years later. Wow. And Someone uh, still had I, it? They didn't burn it? <laughs> I, think, I think it was still sitting on the shelf from when it came out. Wow. I mean, the glue, the glue was so. Because I don't think that they they ever repressed it. You know, yeah. it, it wasn't like they had a, a you know a, a second run because that surely wasn't good enough to go that way. I just remember on the jewel case, the glue was so adhered to the album. I actually replaced the whole jewel oh, case. Oh jeez. So after that um, debacle, I think Rob had some deep thought about what he where he was going, what his direction was, and he between a decision he made or a an epiphany that he had he returned and created a new band called Halford in 1999 i think he did kind of the same thing that bruce did you know bruce went off in a weird direction with skunk works realized that it didn't work listened to the the people around him that were saying this is not you and went back in the direction of where he was comfortable and happy and still experimenting to a degree. Because, I mean, Halford doesn't sound like Judas Priest. It doesn't, but, but it does. It's it, Yeah, it doesn't, but it's, it's it does. I mean, it, it. But if you stuck a Halford song in the middle of a Judas Priest album, it would sound kind of odd. 
it would still be like this is a cool song. Yeah, yeah. Um, where you where you see the similarities when they play them live. But, yeah, especially as they went along. Right, right. Yeah. Now the Halford Project was an incredible band. I mean, he basically puts together this band. They release Resurrection, and the song Resurrection. Every word in that is is his journey through Priest, through Fight. I mean, he even mentions Fight in there, mm-hmm. not as a band, but the, just uses the word Fight. Mm-hmm. You know, something like I got into a fight. He talks about two. He talks about you know his early days in Birmingham, and then he finds himself again. Basically, I mean, it was literally. I mean, it, the perfect title, the perfect kind of song, Resurrection. He was resurrected. The metal god came back, and. That album is great. He did a duet with Bruce Dickinson, which, you know, oddly enough, you know, the two guys who went solo off their big popular bands now, you know, did a duet together. And that kind of what ended up leading to what they were going to try and do, which is called The Three Tremors, where it was supposed to be Bruce wanted Rob, him, and Ronnie James Dio. The record company wanted Jeff Tate. I have no idea why they wanted Jeff Tate. It, it doesn't make sense. No. <laughs> the, the, their pop, Queensryche's popularity at the time wasn't that strong in comparison. But Ronnie James, from what, what I understand is Ronnie James Dio was older at that point than those guys. And so it was more like, you don't want this guy. We, we want someone young to attract this crowd. It would have been terrible. Um, so the Halford Project, you know, Resurrection is one album. Then... He does the live insurrection live album, and then he comes with his second album, Crucible, uh, which came out in 2002. Um, and then a short while there later, he returns to Priest, basically later that year uh, after Crucible was released. It, it really didn't go anywhere as far, very similar to how Small Deadly Space kind of just sank. Uh, it was time. It was time for him to get back to Priest. Yeah, a very similar journey to to Bruce. And what's mm-hmm. interesting, Roy Z worked on both Resurrection and Crucible. Yes. Which is funny, another connection to Bruce's mm-hmm. uh, right. situation. Yeah, he was the he was the producer. He wasn't the guitar. Well, he played guitar on, on Crucible as well. On Crucible or, mm-hmm. or Resurrection? Crucible. Uh, he may have played on Resurrection as well, but it, for sure on Crucible, I know that. So yeah, so Roy Z's got a connection. And then it also had a lot to do... I think um, uh, the album, the the record companies that they were associated with too, had a lot to do with it. So he gets back to to Judas Priest. They come out with Angel of Retribution. Yeah, which, which is was the perfect is is almost bizarrely similar to where they left off with with Painkiller. It was it was the perfect follow up. There's lots of references to the earlier career. Uh, lots of references to the Painkiller stories in that album and it's it was it was a phenomenal return yeah then that album was uh i mean it wasn't necessarily their strongest album no but it was it was definitely a return to form i mean they had two good albums with with um ripper tim ripper owens um with jugulator and um yeah i'm a, I'm a fan of both of those albums the, the other one was demolition demolition um i'm a fan of both of those albums i i really love jugulator it's just such a different tone to what they were doing before with Halford, where Halford kind of sang about these, you know, messiahs and, you know, these guys that were just met beyond belief. And, mm-hmm. and it was almost a positive, these uh, heroes. Right. Whereas Ripper 
the lyrics that he was writing, you know, Jugulator was this monster that was tearing people apart, and it was almost the opposite direction. You know, right, right. Destructors exactly. of worlds. Yeah. Yeah, he was a little more weird, oddly, you know, a little more evil. I guess you yeah, say. Yeah, and and uh, there's no fault to that. Um, I mean, that's they needed something different. You know, they separated from Halford as well, mm-hmm. and, right? And so they tried something, and it just wasn't as successful. They went from being a big stadium band to a club band. Yeah, and unlike Iron Maiden, where Steve Harris was still the main songwriter, you can still hear Iron Maiden as Iron Maiden with Blaze Bailey. Um, but in a similar spectrum, I mean. Uh, Blaze didn't really take them in heights. That, no. That, I mean, they went from being a big band to a club band as well. Oh, for sure. Th- yeah, that similarity, you know, they, they parallel each other a lot in, the, in that 90s. Mm-hmm. The difference between, you know, one and the other was that st- the songs still were Steve Harris songs. They were still Iron Maiden songs. They still sounded relatively similar. Just they were sung differently, and similar to the the No Prayer for the Dying and Fear of the yeah, Dark. Yeah, they weren't era. classic album no. s- stuff. But you know, when you hear songs like Sign of the Cross or The Klansman, you and they're played today now, you could see Bruce doing them, or you could see you know you could see Iron Maiden. Doing I just it. I just kind of fit them more into that that time period of, right. with Fear of the Dark and No Prayer for the Dying, where they had already ventured off. Kind of from the classic metal roots to the more prog stuff. More that they prog, became. yeah. Well, you know, so Judas Priest, the the lyrical change is what kind of set them apart from the the, the previous Judas Priest. Well, the guitar tone was a little different too. I think I think KK and, and and Glenn were going for a more heavier. Yeah, they they wanted kind of a, a metallic. Yes, is is a, yeah, a good way razor of kind of sounding. Yeah, thing. it's very sharp. Right. Yeah. So. That change kind of probably threw off the core fans, you know. Even mm-hmm. though it was heavy, it, it wasn't. Not, it wasn't. You know, it wasn't like they turned into a pop band. Yeah, but it was. It was just different. And then Rob comes back, and they. I mean, they, like you said, they picked up right where, right where Painkiller left, left off. And I was going, and they've, and other than, uh, <laughs> other than um, Nostradamus. They've really progressed with each album going forward. And Firepower, the one that came out a couple of years ago, was an incredible album. I mean, it, it, Firepower really goes back into those those early '80s or that Painkiller period. It, you know, it's got the same sound, you know, to a degree, but it it you know the songwriting is really good on that album. It's very strong. So they they much like Iron Maiden too. They they progressed a certain way. And so there's tremendous parallels between those two bands, even mm-hmm. though they're they're seven years apart in age in terms. Yeah, of, there's there's some odd similarities. Yes, Rob Halford uh, returns to Judas Priest after, well, God, it was uh, ten year ten years away. Mm-hmm. You know, Bruce was away for for six years, Rob was away for ten years. It has done both bands really well. And all right, so we've come to that point of the show where we're going to do the big four. We have a surprise this time. We got. Two big fours. And the reason why we have two big fours is because they're very similarly related. Um, so the big four that we chose to do to this week is the big four best replacement singers. But to go with that and contrast that, we decided, you know what? Why don't we go ahead and throw the best or the big four worst replacement singers? In some cases, they may or may not be the same band, <laughs> but we will see. So let's uh, let's go ahead and start this segment, Chris, and you're going to go ahead and do yours first. All right. So we're starting with the best, and I'm going to go with my uh, number four, who is uh, Sammy Hagar. 
All right, so Sammy Hagar is my number three. Okay. So we can we can talk about it. Um, so Sammy Hagar uh, obviously came into Van Halen um, after David Lee Roth left. Uh, big shoes to fill. Uh, definitely did it with with honors. I mean, fifty one fifty was a huge hit. The next albums they had after him were all great. It, w- it wasn't as long of a time with, as as David, but uh, when you talk about Van Halen, there's there's two distinct eras. Well, technically, it was longer than Dave. Because they well depends on what you what you're talking about. Like I'm talking about first albums. I mean, seventy eight to eighty four. It's only a six year period. But he was obviously Dave was there in seventy six and stuff like that. From first album on, they did six albums compared to four. Yeah. And they, obviously Dave's overall sold more. But they were. I mean, the four albums that Sammy Hagar put out with Van Halen were all four were huge. Yeah, I, I guess you're right. It's it's um he he wasn't in the band. For as long now, yes. But yeah, initially his his tenure was longer. You're correct. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> but the funny thing is that Sammy wasn't even the first choice to uh, to replace David Lee Roth. Do you know who the first choice who was? Who was that? Patty Smythe from Scandal. Really? Yes. He he was. That was the first person that Eddie reached out to to replace David Lee Roth when he left, and she turned it down. Now here's here's one that I didn't even know. I found out today when I was doing his research. He asked someone else again before getting to Sammy. Okay. Daryl Hall. Really? Yes. They It was apparently at the end of a tour. So it would have been Hall and Halen? <laughs> that would have been really funny. Yeah. Wow. Um, so, yeah, he asked Daryl Hall to join, and Daryl Hall politely declined. And it wasn't until um, Eddie had to get his uh, Lamborghini fixed. Yeah, I've that, heard this story multiple that times. He, his mechanic said, "Hey, why don't you talk to this guy Sammy that I know? Sammy coming off of his successful solo tour for uh, for the you know the VOA tour, I think it was. For yeah. I can't drive 55. They hooked up, and the rest, the rest is history. history. Yeah. Um, so my number uh, three is going to be John Bush. Cool. And John Bush. my reasoning behind that is yeah, Joey Belladonna himself being a replacement singer. He he brought the band to new heights, but what ended up happening? You have a you have a established core audience at that point, and he's gone. And they go with John Bush, who had again big shoes to fill, different sound, different singer, but can do everything that Joey could do. Meaning all the songs, mm-hmm, right, he, for he, sure. there wasn't any of that old repertoire that had to be left behind. He could right. sing those songs. But it was it was definitely he brought a a, a deeper tone to the to the vocals. And so that that kind of made Anthrax almost better sounding. They were a little more aggressive sounding. They were more aggressive, put some edge on the band that mm-hmm. wasn't there before, and allowed them to open up their repertoire even further. They were right. able to do songs that not just what they were doing before with the 80s metal, brought it into the new millennium as well. Right. I love John with Anthrax. Mm-hmm. Um, He's and, my favorite Anthrax singer. And it was funny because John, he had been asked to go to Metallica mm-hmm. and turned it down because he had Armored Saint. And they still had Armored Saint when this came up, but they had just done the um, Symbol of Salvation album as good as it was because it that's an incredible album, Symbol of Salvation for Armored Saint. It really didn't go anywhere per se, you know. It didn't break the band or anything like yeah. that. And so, given this opportunity he, to basically get a steady paycheck, essentially, they decided he decided I have to I have to do this and joined Anthrax. And I and I, I thought it was great. 
you know, he, Oh yeah. It's, it's my favorite era of anthrax. Uh, I mean, I love, I love those albums in comparison for sure. I've gone back and listened to more of the Joey Belladonna stuff and I definitely respect it, but I just like that John Bush era a lot more. Yeah. And first album that they do together, sound of white noise, great album. And then essentially to cap off the career, they come around with, we come for you all after struggling to basically get a record deal after struggling to put something cohesive together because they had two albums that came out that the first one it was Stomp 442. When that one comes out, they get dropped by the record label, so they're in, in hiatus. They sign with another record label, Ignition Records, I think it was, for Volume 8. The The company goes kaput overnight. They've got no promotion. Yeah, they had a rough so run there, even though it was good run. material. Yes. It just, it just unfortunately yeah. wasn't working out. You know, after, after Danny Spitz left... Um, after the uh, Sound of White Noise album, they really had a revolving door of guitar players. And so it was unfortunate, but you know, it, it was what it was at the time. They got it all together, finally, and then they re-recorded some of the Joey songs for The Greater of Two Evils. I think that's what it was, yeah. And then we they came out with We Come For You All, or vice versa, I can't remember. But that We Come For You All was an incredible album. So for number two, I got Brian Johnson from ACDC. Excellent choice. Um, I, you know, a, a lot of things told me to put him at number one, but I've got my reasoning for who I put at number one. Uh, but Brian Johnson comes in after ACDC's built up their career. We mentioned this before in the, I believe, the last episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they've they've worked so hard to get where they were, and uh, Bon Scott passes away. ACDC potentially is over at that point. He comes in and records their biggest album ever. Yeah. Uh, with Back in one Black. Of the, one of the biggest albums in the world mm-hmm. ever. Keeps Brian, the band alive to really to this day. I mean, oh, obviously yeah. the changes in the last couple of years with Mal- Malcolm passing away, Axel filling in after Brian, you know, having issues with his hearing for the greater portion of the last 40 years. He's, I mean, it's they, 40 years this yeah. year, yeah. Um, he he w- kept the band afloat, and not just afloat, but put out some amazing albums. No, no. Brian Johnson uh, d- stepped into a difficult situation and made it his own, and has never looked back. And so that was a, a great choice. It was a choice inspired by Bond, and the rest is history, as they say. I mean, 20, 20-something million albums later. Oh, yeah. I mean, just a few years ago with Iron Man. Uh, re- oh, yeah. reignited the the mm-hmm. interest in non not just uh, long time fans but new fans young people that that had ne- not necessarily ever heard ACDC so yeah Brian Johnson definitely deserves to be up there at the top for sure uh, but above him I uh, put Phil and Selmo Phil and seriously mm-hmm. <laughs> and okay. I'll tell you why all right so Phil comes in. After three albums with uh, with Terry Glaze with Pantera, and uh, Pantera has gone nowhere. They've they're a relatively unknown band. They've self produced their albums. They're just they're a hair band. Phil comes in, puts out one hair band style album, but you can hear them changing. He's got a, a deeper voice, a gruffer voice, and all of a sudden they put out a masterpiece in in Cowboys from Hell. It's. I mean, he wasn't the original singer, and while most people don't know that, and they do now, and in hindsight's twenty twenty, so we're gonna go with Phil and Selma. You know, in in researching this project, I I did kind of 
almost put that down. I think it was on my list of, of all, all the different ones that I put. I believe Phil Anselm was on that list. It was one of those things where I was like, eh, I don't know if I want to do that because it was really before they were anything kind of changed. But they had three albums that existed and were out there that for people to buy. Technically, yes. And so what also why I pick him ahead of Brian is because when Brian came in, yeah, they put out their biggest album. Not everything has been the top tier great albums afterwards. Right. I mean, to, to Black back in Black was was the pinnacle and then it went a little down from there and, and I don't mean a tremendous amount down, but the, that was the best. Yeah. Whereas Pantera, he comes in and they just got better and better through vulgar display of power, through far beyond driven, far beyond driven. I mean, huge. Oh yeah, no. I mean, each album progressed and got harder and harder and harder. And even I remember saying I was working at Best Buy at the time, and the Great Southern Trend Kill was coming out. I, I felt like you were going to say the Great Southern Trail Mix. <laughs> <laughs> well, that that Monday night, I, I go to put it in, and and I said, can they top? what they did on Far Beyond Driven in, ter- in terms of getting harder. And that first song, The, the Great Southern Trinkill, answered it. I mean, I was blown away how much harder, faster, more extreme it was than Slaughtered, you know, from the previous album. So I couldn't believe it. So they did They did what I thought they were going to do or what I may have expected. Oh, yeah. So it, it was pretty incredible. Those are really, those are four good choices. Of those, only one of them was uh, one of mine. So... Let me go. My number four best replacement singer, or, or big four, is Mark Tornillo from Accept. Okay, that's a good um, one. Okay, so for people who don't know Accept that well, formed in 1976, first album comes out in 79. They're a German band. Um, the height of their success came between 82 and 86, the balls to the wall era, basically. After time with, with their singer Udo, he decided he wanted to do some other stuff. And they just creative differences. They had two reunions with Udo. They basically put the band to bed in the late 2000s, if you want to put it that way. In 2009, they uh, end up, they're in New York City, and they have a rehearsal. Peter Baltus, the bass player, and, and uh, Wolf Hoffman, the guitar player, are together to hang out, and they hear about this guy, Mark Tornillo. They, they, they reach out to each other. Somehow they get into a rehearsal space. They start singing, and it's like magic. In my opinion, Mark Tornillo sounds a lot like Udo. But he has a different edge to him. It's a different tone. It's I a mean, different tone, but it's they, they both you know they have that Brian Johnson sound. That, but he can do the things that Udo did. Mm-hmm. He, he can do those yeah. kind of like John Bush that I was describing, where he's got the the same chops that he can cover right. what Udo did, but he does something different too. He brings something different to the table. Yes, and so in two thousand nine, they record and released the album Blood of the Nations. Incredible return to form for Accept. The Andy Sneap, honestly, is a, heavier, a little I, bit which heavier. I like. Yeah. Andy Sneap was a huge Accept fan, and he's the one who produced the album. He went to the band and said, "You know, they they sat down and they listened to Balls to the Wall, you know, and they said, this is you know, or he told them, this is what I want you guys to sound. This is you. This is Accept. This is this is what everybody loves, and so they did that, and that's why the album was successful. And they've tried to do that over again. They've released four albums since then. It's been they've been pretty good. Nothing as good as Blood of the Nations, but they've been successful. And so that's my number four, Mark Tornillo. It's a good choice. Thank you. Uh, number three was Sammy. We talked about him. And he was replacement singer twice. <laughs> he replaced Dave both times. <laughs> that's true. Actually, no, that's not. That's true and not true. He replaced Dave. He left. He was replaced by Gary. Well, he was replaced by Dave, who then replaced 
who was replaced by Gary, who then was replaced by Dave, who then was replaced by Sam. It was weird, weird how that all went and down. And there was another guy in the mix at one yeah, point. he didn't really do anything. He, well, yeah, he got... You never got hired officially. Yeah. For one day, I think it was. Yeah. So, okay. So that was number three, Sammy Hagar. Number two on my list of best replacement singers is Todd Latore for Queensryche. That's a really good choice because he's the guy that makes me really like Queensryche. That's cool. I like that. In 2012, Queen, the, the members of Queensryche, Michael Wilton, Eddie Jackson... Uh, so Michael Wilton being the guitar player, Eddie Jackson, the bass player, and Scott Rockenfeld basically got fed up with um, their manager, who was Susan Silver, who is um, Jeff Tate's wife. And they also got fed up with Miranda Tate, who was Jeff's daughter. She was running the fan club. Susan was managing them. They got tired of the of the basically having no say in the, in the band. They fired Tate and they fired uh, Miranda Tate and they fired Susan Silver. Jeff got upset had an altercation with the band and in June of that year they fired him because they said they, they came to the conclusion they could no longer work together. It was pretty hostile. I mean, it did Jeff spit on one of the, the Yeah, he spit on Scott. Yeah. Uh, uh, right before during a show. So it's one of those things where it's like how can you work with someone like that? So they returned home and they were basically going to be on hiatus. They were told that nothing was going to happen for the next year. In that same time they decided they wanted to work as they still wanted to work. They needed to make money. They needed to earn. They made two decisions. One, they fired Jeff Tate and they said, we're, we're done. So they, they um, have this um, band they, they, themselves and they said, okay, we're going to bring in another singer. They, they had no idea who the singer was going to be, but they said, you know, we're going to do this project. And they literally called up a venue in Washington and said, hey, we want to do two shows. And this is the name of the band. And uh, it was West originally, and then they changed it to Rising West. They reached out to Todd Latore, or I believe a mutual friend or something like that, brought him over to Washington, had never talked to him, had never heard you know, him sing other than what they saw on YouTube with Crimson Glory. And they were going to do this show, and it was just to rehearse so they could do this show. He was a fan of Queensryche, so he kind of knew the material, and they hit it off right away. The two shows were sold out. They literally got offered a management deal right after the show. And off they went. Todd was still part of Crimson Glory, but Crimson Glory ended up coming around and saying, we're not going to do anything. And he's like, you know what? I'm, I'm not hanging around to do nothing. Queensryche was ready to go. He, he joined Queensryche in 2014. He officially became a member of the Queensryche Corporation or whatever it was after the lawsuit was over between uh, Queensryche and Jeff Tate. And they have begun as Queensryche. They've released three albums, all three progressively getting better. As you know, you like him now. We we went to see him a couple weeks ago. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting thing. I I never really was a big Queensrÿche fan. Uh, I can recognize how talented Jeff is, uh, but his his voice just didn't appeal to me in that way. You know, it, it, I've always gone towards the heavier, more growly vocals, and I do like progressive metal as well. I mean, I, I, I like Stradivarius and some of these other bands that sing the, the progressive style. I'm a big Angra fan. Yeah, Queensryche just never hit a chord with me. And I think it was more because I heard Operation Mindcrime and some of the, the stuff after that that was a little softer, mm-hmm. and it didn't appeal to me. The silent lucidity stuff. Yeah. Now, 
when I listen to the the new albums with Tal the Tori, they're they're heavier, they're more progressive. They've got some really interesting, intricate guitar work too. Mm-hmm. And I I just I mean, you can hear how free the the band members are in oh, comparison yeah. to how sure. kind of chained down they were before. It's strange because Michael Wilton now is the leader of Queensryche mm-hmm. as as their main guitar player. He was the second guitar player. Chris DeGarmo was the main songwriter. Uh, him and Jeff were the main songwriters for Queensryche early on. And obviously Michael had his say, but the the big thing about Queensryche was the, the dual harmony guitars. That kind of, when Chris left, that kind of got buried in the background. They weren't as progressive. And when they got Todd and they brought, you know, they had Parker already at the end of the Jeff Tate era. Parker was all in on Queensryche, and he was real happy that, to do the, the dual harmonies. Mm-hmm. And he's a perfect compliment. I mean, many years younger, but still a perfect compliment to, to Michael's playing. So yeah, if you're if you're like me and you weren't a big Queensrÿche fan before, definitely give uh, the new albums a chance. Uh, one of my friends who felt the same way, who's more of a, a death metal guy, but likes you know the same kind of music that I do. I showed him some of the new stuff. Uh, Light Years being one of my favorite songs on the new album. He's blown away. I mean, it's it's somewhere in between like Dream Theater, but it's a little it's a little more um, on point and less technical than uh, than Dream Theater. And I think it's more aggressive than, than, than oh Dream for sure, Theater. right? But it's got those elements of very prog. Uh, yeah, prog, but but j- technical. Yeah. Okay. So my number one best replacement singer, Bruce Dickinson. Yeah, twice seems like an obvious choice. Again, twice. (laughs) Um, Bruce Dickinson replaced Paul Deano. I'm surprised I don't have that on my list. (laughs) I was surprised you didn't myself. I just knew you would have it there. Okay. Well, basically, at the end of 1981, Paul Deano basically wrote his death wish out out of Iron Maiden between the alcohol and the drugs. Steve and Rod were looking for a new singer. They got, uh, they interviewed, literally interviewed Bruce before he auditioned and Bruce laid down, basically laid down the law that, you know, I'm not going to be some pushover, you know, it's going to be this, it's going to be that, you know, and they accepted that. And so they had a fruitful relationship for the next 10 years. Basically that's the classic era of Iron Maiden. They released number of the beast, peace of mind, somewhere in time, seventh son, power slave, you know, all those, classic era albums you know uh, and I, i'm not including <laughs> fear the dark and no prayer because they weren't classic but those were the end that was the end of still, bruce's I, still people consider him part of that era because i mean they they well it's before bruce left but right. there's still some great songs on yeah, they are but it, that after seventh son it would, that you could see there was a definitive line there because adrian left and things changed they went yeah. they were they were so getting into the 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 um uh synthesized guitars mm-hmm but it, it went back to straight ahead rock and roll metal with no prayer. And it was, it was like a dead stop. You know, they had been building up all this synth and this on, you know, no, yeah. it, it just stopped. So th- there's a defining line there. Again, kind of like uh, Judas Priest with Turbo. True. Exactly. Yeah. Because when Painkiller came out, it was a defining line. It, it well, stopped. Ram It Down was before that, but yeah. But I, I think that even then the, the sound of the guitars that, 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 um, Glenn and KK had on on uh, Ram It Down were still a little synth, and certainly the drumming was uh, <laughs> a clear <laughs> clear difference between yes. Ram It Down and, and uh, 
You know, I, I, I heard an interview the other day where someone gave Dave Holland a compliment. Okay. I was surprised. He just talked about how he was a solid in-the-pocket drummer, which yeah, I mean, technically he was. Reliable. <laughs> Phil Rudd's reliable, but he's a lot more influential than Dave Holland. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, Bruce leaves in 1993, and Blaze Bailey is hired, does two albums, and then Bruce replaces Blaze a second time. A second, so he, you know, is the second singer that he's replaced in Iron Maiden. Double replacement. Twenty years later, Iron Maiden is stronger than ever, and and we went to see the Legacy of the Beast tour, and that was amazing. Probably the best show I've seen, and I've seen Iron Maiden nine times, <laughs> Metallica ten times. So that was my top four, big four best singers or sing, uh, best replacement singers. But we're gonna do the opposite now. And we're going to run this real quick. The big four worst replacement singers. Do you want to go first? Yeah. I mean, I, uh, so coming up with with four uh, was pretty easy. Really? But <laughs> number four. I had a tough time. <laughs> number four to me was tough because I had a few people I wanted to put in there. All right. Who you got? Um, it is tough for me, but I'm with number four, I'm going to go with Johnny Solinger. Oof. With uh, Skid Row. Skid Row. Because okay. I'm a big Skid Row fan. I, I loved what they did with their three albums with Sebastian. And so him leaving the band was necessary. It had to happen. But I, I honestly feel like they should not have continued as Skid Row afterwards. I agree. John, Johnny Selinger has more of a... And he's a good singer. Don't get me wrong. He's a Houston boy, isn't he? Uh, I believe so. Either that or he lives here now and just does all the shows <laughs> for all those people that play at the warehouse. He does yeah. all the opening act shows. He, I mean, he's a great singer. Uh, no fault to him personally, but to me, he just didn't fit that. Like they got heavier and heavier with each album with with Sebastian. Mm-hmm. Um, even Subhuman Race, which I like, and it's not a, a huge hit. But it's it's a heavy album. It's a it's a good album, and if you if you haven't given it a listen because it doesn't have hit songs on it, give it a second chance. Those three albums were great, and then Johnny comes in, and it's years later, but he's got a softer feel, and it's just, the attacks just not there. Mm-hmm. I just I just felt like they were kind of a shell of what they were with Sebastian. Well, I agree with you on that one. Um, but um, Speedy Recovery, Johnny, he recently got into a car accident. And, oh, I didn't uh, know that. That's yeah, horrible. Yeah, he, he had to cancel a couple of shows here in Houston. Uh, so hopefully he recovers quickly and gets back out out, out there. Absolutely. Rocking. All right, number three. Um, number three, I'm gonna go with um, I'm gonna go with Gary Sharon. Ooh, that's my number three. <laughs> okay. So it's again Van no Allen. fault to Jer- Gary Sharon. No, extreme. A lot better. I I I'm not the biggest extreme fan. But I definitely but for, what, for what they are, it was perfect. Yeah, it was perfect. They they had a lot of chemistry together. Great band. Uh, with Van Halen, it was just kind of a mixture of bad circumstances and just not necessarily the right fit. I tend to be of the belief that if if he had come in and they had done a tour first before recording an album, they probably would have fared a lot better than they did. I don't know if it would have lasted. I don't know what would have happened. But I think I think that would have been a better decision than going ahead and recording Van Halen 3 without having that chemistry. Expecting magic to happen twice, lightning in a bottle twice, with like the situation with Sammy, it just it just wasn't the right call. You know and how he got the gig? What's that? You know how he got the gig? How's that? They had the same manager. Mm. So um, Van Halen's manager was Ray Daniels. 
and he also managed Extreme at the time. Gotcha. So he's like, hey, Gary, come on down here, which I think is kind of wrong. You, you poach your own band. <laughs> you know, it's like. He, but he has, I mean, if you really listen to his vocals, he has a, a Sammy like quality. And I can kind of get that, but Sammy wasn't the same as Dave either. No. So I don't know if that was the, the mentality of like, hey, they sound kind of the same. Let's put them in plug in place. I, I just think things might have gone differently and that we may have never gotten Van Halen 3. They they may not have been successful at all, um, but I think it would have been a better decision to tour with him first. I I, I I tend to agree that with that. You know, see what the fans think first. Not that you have to worry about what the fans think in general, but if if you go out on tour and you and you get no response, then you kind of know this guy might yeah, not be the right guy. Exactly. So, all right, number two. Number two, I'm going to go with uh, Dan Nelson. That's my number two. That's did you steal my list? I did not. <laughs> we don't look at each other's list no. before we do this. So um, That's funny. Dan Nelson, I just thought it was kind of interesting. It's a juxtaposition against John Bush. Um, Dan Nelson comes in after John Bush is alienated from from uh, Anthrax due to the reunion with, with Joey Belladonna. If you if you thought Van Halen was weird when it came to singers, Anthrax was just as bad, yeah. if not worse. I mean, it's like they fire a guy because he said bad shit about the bass player and the bass player was their good friend. So that's, you know, that's the first singer. And then, you know, uh, and then, well, not, not, not true. Hold on. I got that backwards. The singer talks crap about the bass player. So, so, um, their first singer, can't remember his name now. Neil Turbin. Neil Turbin says bad stuff about Dan Lilker. They fire Dan Lilker, okay? And then to basically fire, the, you know, uh, Neil because he's basically an asshole. They get John, they get Joey Belladonna. You know, they have a, this successful career. Then they want to get harder. They get John Bush, and John Bush. They, they decide, oh, let's get back together with with Joey because we've got this tour coming up that you know we're being pressured to do this greatest hits or reunion type thing. They record a song together, not really together. They were never in the studio together, but they did that ball of confusion mm-hmm. song, uh, which was kind of weird. You know, I mean, they're not together. They, 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 it's not really a duet. It really doesn't do anything for the band. It's a kind of weird choice of song. Joy Belladonna doesn't come back to Anthrax. And so then, John doesn't want to come back to Anthrax. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, they built up a relationship, and it, it it's just kind of the same thing as uh, as Ronnie with uh, Ozzy. You know, right. I don't want to. I don't. It's just you don't want to step on those toes, and mm-hmm. uh, it's really unfortunate. But that's that's how it happened. So basically, they come along and they they find this guy Dan Nelson. It's not that he's really not a good singer or anything like that. It's just he he's not a good fit. For no, the band. not at all. Not at all. You go and you can go on YouTube. You can go on various websites. You can find these these videos of him singing the song, and it's just not a, a no. good fit. It, it, again, it, it it was one of those things where I think Anthrax was trying to fit themselves into a, a particular style that was popular at the time. But with grunge being popular, they wanted someone with a rough a rough sound, so they picked John Bush. Yeah, and you Dan know. had that. Not well, deathy, well, but metalcore was the metalcore. big thing, you know. American, yeah. the, the 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 new wave of American heavy metal. That whole scene was, you know, people were the growls and the screams. That's what people were listening to. That's mm-hmm. what they were into. So let's get somebody like that. But seeing a guy like that sing only and seeing well, how was he going to do? I am the law or or anything really. Yeah, and that's that's why it didn't go anywhere. Exactly. Yeah, Dan was a failure. 
but he as did, an anthrax singer. But but the funny thing is, is that he he did record the entire worship music album. And they but they changed everything yeah, when they, they wiped it all out. Yeah, when they brought they, on uh, Joey again, as Torben Ulrich said, hit delete. <laughs> <laughs> and number one, I'm going to go with this guy because even though he helped or kept the band afloat. I just personally never liked his vocals, and it's hard for me because, especially because he's following up one of my favorite singers, and that would be Blaze Bailey. Oh, okay. I mean, I had him, but I was like, you know what? I already did enough Iron Maiden. But, <laughs> but yeah, Blaze had a tough, tough shoe to fill. Yeah, or he, shoes to fill. He he's coming up after Bruce Dickinson, and that's impossible. To me, uh, it really is. I, I I personally just can't perceive anybody having the right fit for Iron Maiden after Bruce. We started this podcast because I was listening to a bunch of podcasts uh, myself. And one of the podcasts that I listened to was uh, Talking Maiden with these guys from Canada. Uh, another shout out to you guys. They love Blaze. But one of the things that they, they talk about when it comes to Blaze is... They kind of detailed a little bit about what happened during the X Factor period and then the Virtual Eleven period. And X Factor, they they kind of took their time to write the album. They gelled. They put it. It was a more cohesive type of album. But when they did Virtual Eleven, they went into the studio with no ideas. They just banged everything out. First idea recorded, boom, and it was on tape, and it was it was done. And it shows because you know a song like Angel and the Gambler runs for 10 minutes and it's just this rambling of the same chorus over and over and over again it could have easily been four minutes and have been probably a really good song yeah those are the things that hurt blaze the other thing is like you said it's just impossible to replace someone like bruce dickinson and be thought of as, as someone capable they didn't they, i had mentioned this before they didn't bring somebody in that had the same type of pipes that could re I guess re-energize the original songs. He wasn't as strong a singer as Bruce. Well, yeah, and that's that's the difficulty is who can really because Bruce has such a wide range and a high you know high spectrum of where he can hit notes. Mm-hmm. And in Blaze doesn't no. For for me, the biggest thing is that he took a a stadium band and they became a club band, and that's Iron Maiden. Yeah. So and it, I saw Iron Maiden in the club with Blaze. Yeah, and so that's that's really the biggest reason you know it's just he he just didn't have the the right vibe the right fit and i and i i agree with you i agree with you completely all right so you got half of my list so my number four worst replacement singer rob dukes for exodus and exodus another one of those bands that have had you know this revolving Revolving door door, of of vocalists but the same vocalist they had paul bailoff is their their vocalist then he gets himself fired. They hire Steve Souza, who was fired from Testament. And, you know, Steve Souza leaves or, or the band folds or something like that. Paul Bailoff comes back, uh, does a couple albums, dies, you know, and then so they get Steve Souza back. Mid tour, Steve Souza quits. They get these guys to replace Steve at the end of the tour. At the end of, you know, the, the touring cycle and they go to record a new album. They go to look for a new singer. They get Rob Dukes, who was in-house already because he was a guitar tech for them. So now Rob Dukes records four albums with with uh, Exodus, and they're not bad. His, his voice, very similar more to Paul than to Steve, but all three of them have these weird, whiny, 
screamy voices, almost like a someone grabbed Brian Johnson's junk and, and squeezed tight, and, that, <laughs> and that's basically the way it sounds, you know. Um, and again, it works for them, you know, but I've never been a huge fan of Exodus. I got a, they have a couple of songs that I like, you know, Piranha and Toxic Waltz, but nothing extravagant. To be honest, I haven't really heard much of the the Rob Duke stuff. Um, I heard some of the very early Exodus albums, but uh, they've just never been a huge one on my radar. I mean, they were they were playing. I mean, that the the Rob Duke's era was, or actually the basically the last Sousa album that they did, and then from there on, they've been kind of this really hard, uh, almost like a hardcore thrash band, mm. um, and which is fine. It suits them. That's that's their thing. You know, it's like almost Slayer esque kind of without the uh and even in some cases some evil evil uh, lyrics so that's number four number three was gary sharon from van halen uh for the same reasons we, we discussed number two was dan nelson for the same reasons we discussed uh for anthrax and then my number one was john karabi motley crew he was uh, he was on my radar as far as one of these but yeah. to, to me I, to me that's a bigger failure than than blaze with iron maiden the reason why is because he was brought in for all the wrong reasons. Oh, completely. You and know. and you talk about somebody that doesn't sound anything like the previous regime. I right. Mean, exactly. Uh, just completely different direction. I mean, I, I, I personally don't know what they were thinking, per se, when they said, hey, let's get John Karabi. It's fine. It, it, it meshed well in terms of music, but it wasn't Motley Crue. No. And that's where it failed. And, and especially the fact that they called the album Motley Crue. Yes. You know, you, you self-titled the album. So, you, you know, to me, you know, that's supposed to be a rebirth. Motley Crue is a certain, there's a sound to Motley Crue. And even with that, Vince Neil's voice changed on every single album. Okay. So every single album sounded different. It was produced differently. You know, his vocals were different. Whatever For whatever reason, they changed in each album. John Karabi joining Motley Crue to me was just a, a monumental mistake. Even he knew it when the time the time came. He's the one who said, "Nick, you need to you need to bring Vince back." I mean, he basically fired himself from the band. The whole thing with Vince was just a. If you see, if you, if you can read through the lines in the movie The Dirt, what really happened with Vince was not. I don't think it was drugs or alcohol or anything like because they were all, you know, wasted characters. The band had one agenda. Vince Neil was going through some personal tragedy with the death of his daughter. Or this, first the sickness of his daughter, her having cancer, and then her dying. I mean, that weighs a lot on someone. And you know, you don't necessarily focus your, your job. You're, you're not focused on doing your job. So I think it was a kind of a messed up thing to, to have happen the way it did. But it happened. They, they hired John for all the wrong reasons. He's my number one. All right. So tonight we talked about artists going solo and our big four replacement singers, both good and bad. Well, that's it for Debating Metal this week. You can listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Podbean, or wherever you consume your podcast. If you enjoyed our show and agreed with our opinions or just want to rip us a new one, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, or you can email us at debatingmetal at gmail.com. I'm Chris Gay, and on behalf of Kenneth Dean, We'll see you next week. Bye.